the the people who I know who are the most successful have rarely had everything in their life go right. The ones who are really successful have had a couple of horrific experiences. Mm. They've learnt from those experiences. It's what's made them better business people or investors or directors or, you know, whatever the case might be. They're the people that you want then involved in your next venture if it has a tough time. You, the people who've only had great things happen to them are going to be pretty useless when you know, your company hasn't, has a tough time. So those people are really valuable. And so that Australia piles on to the people who've had a horrific experience or something's not worked out or it's failed is depriving the country, the sector, the industry, whatever we're talking about of the really valuable people. And it's a recipe for mediocrity. Mm. So, you know, we circle back to the original discussion about where are we going to be economically going forward? We're never going to have a comparative or competitive advantage on a global scale if we trap ourselves in mediocrity. Real People is produced by Square Holes, an agency conducting and publishing customised explorative research on key consumer markets, customers and population segments. Squareholes also provides associated consulting and support to ignite positive business and social behaviour change. Visit squareholes.com for more. Radio, hello there. My name is Jason Dunstone and welcome to Real People, where we interview average and not-so-average people, academics, researchers and leading thinkers to help us better understand what real people believe and how they behave. Today we are joined by Elaine Steed from Blue Sky Alternative Investments. We go way back to Elaine's childhood as a young girl who loved homework and learning and was ever eager to please. We talk about Elaine's academic pursuit of science, then pivoting into the world of venture capital, startup advisory and multiple board directorships. Elaine and I discuss all things success and failure and how Australia's tall poppy syndrome just breeds mediocrity. I sat down with Elaine on a day, week, month, year that was pretty challenging personally and professionally. On the day of this interview, Elaine was in the media and she felt horrible about letting investors and others down. Life can be hard sometimes when no matter how hard you try, things go bad. Let's not waste a moment. On with the show. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about. Wait! Okay now, from the beginning... Thank you so much for joining us today, Elaine. I'm going to start off with... I've got a question I ask in all of these interviews, but I'm going to start off another one. The last interview I did, I started off with a different question. Um, and the random question today is sort of, what has made you laugh out loud in the last week? <laughs> That's, a... <laughs> That's a great question because it's actually been a super tough week. So um, what has made me... Oh, Okay. This, this made me laugh out loud. I went to um, – so two of my best friends all share a birthday within the same week that I did. Yeah. And my birthday was a couple of days ago, but we all went out for dinner on Saturday night and uh, one of my best friends used to have really long hair in university. That's how um, – what he looked like when I first met him. He's, yeah. you know, as all of us, lose a little bit of hair as mm. we go. Um, and I often wear wigs because I um, have alopecia and – 
he took the wig off my head and put it on his head and we took some photos for to kind of mimic a photo that um, was from like 1995 and that, that made me laugh out loud. <laughs> <laughs> and, and like when you have those, like, those moments, like, what, like what, why does it matter to laugh out loud? Oh, God. I mean, you know, there's that cliche that laughter is the best medicine yeah. and, um, you know, for, for sure there haven't been too many reasons for me to laugh over the last 15 months but, um, you know, it is just reminds you that there's a little bit of joy, yeah. um, particularly when things are a little bit tough and I think everyone needs to be reminded of that every now and That's then. That's right. It counterbalances, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Right. So this is a question I've asked in a we didn't ask in the first one, but we sort of asked it every other interview, and it's, I think it's worked, been quite insightful. What were you like as a girl, young girl, about eight, eight, uh, ten? Yeah. Flash right back. What were you, what do you like? Yeah. So I was uh, the annoyingly um, conscientious eight-year-old girl. Yeah. So my, um, <laughs> I remember as a six-year-old in um, year one asking my teachers for homework. Because I was obsessed with school and homework and wanting to get good grades. And um, eight, I was probably already playing basketball competitively as well. Um, Where did that come from? Where did that kind of thing come from? I I honestly don't know. Um, I, I am a perfectionist, not in the sense of having to do things perfectly or being particularly detail oriented, mm-hmm. but having to be perceived as always doing things to the best of my ability mm-hmm. and to have a, you know, to, to be a good person. And I've just always been like that and yeah. have been hardwired that way, I think, from Is that in your DNA one. or is it just, just you? Just like no, it. I think it's partly my DNA, but it's also partly my parents. My parents yeah. were both immigrants. Yeah, from and where? So my mother from Holland yeah. and my dad from New Zealand. Yeah. And my dad left home at 16. He grew up on a dairy farm, um, left home at 16, moved to Australia, had no money, you know, really started from scratch. My mum moved from Holland when she was eight, but, um, you know, had a horrendous time assimilating into Australia in yeah. 1950s Australia, yeah. as you can imagine. Um, and, you know, her family also came here with, you know, barely anything and had to really build their lives from scratch. And I think there is something about that migrant um, work ethic and desire to make something of themselves and mm. to be seen as making a contribution mm. that absolutely rubbed off on my sister and I. So that's definitely part of yeah, it. Yeah. But I think part of it is just hardwired into me as well. Is so. It? Yeah, I was one of those kids that was constantly anxious, constantly worrying, had to work and try really hard at whatever I did. Um, I don't remember a lot of, uh, you know, time where I was just kind of catching tadpoles or riding around in the street, yeah. <laughs> which is a bit sad as I think about it. Um, but, you know, it's what makes you you and yeah. um, all of it contributes to the did human you, you are today. A couple of interviews we've had, no. parents of migrants have gone, they had it, so they've gone, oh, we felt a little bit different. But no, no, you no, didn't. No, I never felt different on, in that way because one of the things I often get asked when I tell people that my mother is Dutch, and I, the reason I say my mother is because it was her grandmother and all of my um, uncles and aunties, they're all from Holland, even the ones they married. So um, 
just surrounded by Dutch people all the time. Mm. And my grandmother lived two day- doors down from us, so she was yeah. over all the time. And yeah. So people say, oh, do you speak Dutch? And um, I don't because my mum, having had such a horrendous time learning English, trying to assimil- assimilate into Australian culture, wanted us to not feel different at all. Mm-hmm. So she never taught us another language, her and Grandma spoke it at home mostly so we couldn't understand what they were saying. Yeah. <laughs> um, and But, no, I never felt different in that regard. Okay. And you were clearly studious. So you, you like, yeah. did you like primary school as much as high, like high school or was it? I liked, I loved primary school. Yeah. Like, honestly, it yeah. was like, f- f- I'm sure how other kids look at Disneyland. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I thought of school, which is so lame, yeah. but I really did. I loved going every day. I just wanted to do more work at when I got home. Um, I loved, I had such fabulous teachers and I yeah. think that really makes the difference. Mm. I was very lucky in that regard. Um, and then high school is tougher because um, you're going to school with a bunch of teenagers and, you know, teenagers are absolutely going through a volatile period in terms of, their emotions and their hormones and so that you know adds layers of complexity but mm-hmm. i still loved high school yeah um, and did you, you know, you've, you've done your phd and like you've obviously academic and uh, like where did that all come from did you have a clear idea from a young age i wanted to i wanted to be a scientist or because you, no, you, what, what did, did you do your phd in so i did my phd in uh stem cell biology okay. i mean it was in yeah. biochemistry but um i studied uh, stem cells but no, I didn't have a strong idea of what I wanted to do when I grew up. I didn't necessarily wanted to want to be a scientist. I do remember wanting to be a journalist because I loved writing. Yeah. Um, and I remember remember my dad saying to me many many times that he encouraged me to go down that path. But once I was in school, I just loved the science subjects and just yeah. continued to kind of expand on those as I as I went through school. Um, and I never had a grand plan to do anything particularly vocational. So it's not like I always wanted to be a scientist or a doctor or anything like that. I just wanted to continue to learn stuff that I thought was interesting. Mm. And so when I finished high school, that's the reason I did a science degree at university, not because I thought that would lead to anything. I just thought it would be fun to continue to learn more about biology and chemistry and maths and physics, and um, which... On one level, I'm proud of myself for doing because I wasn't sort of trying to make my world fit um, a particular path. I was, you know, pretty Mm. open. But by the same token, you know, it tells you that I'm not really a great long-term planner. (laughs) So, um, but I always thought, oh, God, I can just fall back into doing teaching or something. But going through that, um, at university just led me to doing an honours degree and then I loved that. It was mm. the first time I got to do a research project. You have some autonomy over what you're doing mm. um, and that lulled me into a false sense of security yeah. <laughs> about science and yeah. I went and did a PhD. And then that was still today, um, maybe not still today, but one of the hardest things I've ever done. In terms of PhD? And, yeah. yeah, just because it's really challenging in, in many ways Mine took five years. It's supposed to take sort of three and a half Mm -hmm. years. I started on one research project and about a year into it, I got scooped by another lab in Europe and had to start again, And which is all fine, but you only actually get a stipend for three years. So um, 
in addition to that... Because a PhD, you need to do some, like, unique research. Absolutely, and it takes a a while to kind of get through that. Um, And had to work two jobs at the same time to kind of get myself through it. Oh, retail jobs. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, yeah, like, I'm so glad I did it because it's given me a fantastic platform for a whole bunch of other things that I have done. It's not really a science or a research. It's not a science-focused degree. It's an analytical project. So it teaches you problem solving. Mm. It teaches you autonomy. And that's what I was wondering. Sort of is, is, it, is the science about the, the problem solving or the curiosity, well, is all of that. So you kind of when when you look at it, you go, it's a science degree, but it's actually kind of it's it's actually kind of unpacking and thinking and a- absolutely. Yeah. So the way I think that's been useful in a career that has since been mostly rooted in business as opposed mm-hmm. to to science or research is it's just taught me enormous problem solving skills and analytical skills, um, how to do things on the sniff of an oily rag. Um, yeah how to be autonomous and yeah. how, to, how you do that. So I'm very glad that I did it. Yeah. Um, I won't be racing back to university to do another one. Yeah, but, <laughs> but I, I guess it's sort of interesting just here. Obviously, you're, you spent much of your career in business and entrepreneurship and, and venture capital and, all, and, and those sort of areas. Um, and I hear like more conversation the last couple of years about in school, you've got to get more entrepreneurship and it's not about getting a job, it's about creating a job. But sometimes those conversations are in absence of being able to be good at science and maths and, and those things there. It's almost going, it's, and sometimes you go, well, if you can't be good at science, like science is kind of where a lot of innovation likely comes from, a lot of problem solving or, or pushing yourself harder, I, I would have thought. Well, I think some of it does, but I think what is less talked about, so the really techie stuff mm-hmm. which relies on people having a science background or a computer science background or um, some sort of... Um, uh, math or science-based discipline get talked about a lot. But the reality is most of the startups or the early-stage high-growth businesses that we see aren't really rooted in those kind of hard science disciplines. They're, you know, people who've had a great idea and um, or they've seen a a niche in the market or there's a problem that they've seen that they want solved and so they go solve Mm -hmm. it. Um, it, It's becoming less and less really hard uh, technology focused or if it does require some sort of hard science based technology that's much easier to access now and outsource mm. and um, and so it's a far more democratic process I think mm. to start a business or create a product or create so it's a almost com- is it like almost commercialization if someone goes there's a yeah and I it's, it's almost the person who can bring that idea to, to life absolutely is, yeah. I think so and so um, you know, in terms of the opportunities we see, most of them are from, you know, in the old days, very um, condescendingly referred to as a backyard in, um, entrepreneur or a backyard inventor. But it's just an average person who's gone, do you know what, it would be really great if you had this mm. and then kind of fiddled around with different ideas and then yeah. found some people to help them. Um, then we ever see a really, you know, university-based, really hard mm-hmm. science-based innovation. Of course that still happens. Yeah. It's just not the majority. Is that right? Okay, mm. yeah. So how would you describe your profession now? What would you say you are now? My profession as a venture capitalist, yeah. I would describe us as um, entrepreneur enablers. So we 
add some fuel to the fire yeah. by providing capital. But um, more than that, I hope what we're doing is acting as partners for entrepreneurs to help realise their vision. Yeah. So, um, you know, entrepreneurs tend to pick funding partners. If they're lucky enough to have choice, they'll often try and pick their funding partners who um, not just provide capital but can provide actual help and expertise, introductions to people, yeah. channels to market, um, and, you know, a shoulder to cry on, an mm-hmm. ear to bend, um, be a bit of a consigliere, um, all of those things. And so that's kind of how I see my profession now. It's it's really we're just enablers who are part of that supply chain of yeah. getting a new idea to the market. So it's, just, it's not just here's some cash, we expect you to turn a profit. It, it's actually... The, the advice and the filling the gaps and being candid and I think so. all those things there. Yeah. yeah, I mean, of course, there are there. There's a million different ways to do venture capital, mm. um, and but that's the way that I have seen be the most effective. I think and um, have the most impact. Yeah. So what is like? We don't want to go through your whole kind of itemized sort of stepping stone career, but how did you go from kind of doing your PhD to becoming a a VC. Yeah, did, it's a bit... did you travel a lot? Did you like? Did you? Um, so I have travelled a lot in my career, yeah. um, but really, I got to the end of my PhD and and decided pretty clearly that I didn't want to continue to be an academic. Yeah. So I didn't want to go into academia, where mostly because I was pretty disenfranchised um, at the end of my PhD. I was pretty. Um, exhausted and a bit burnt out but also I just didn't want to get on that um, hamster wheel of having to apply for my job every couple of years through grant applications and um, and the politics associated with that Uh, so but I did want to do something that still got to use that PhD in Mm. some way shape or form so it wasn't a waste of time not that it ever is but um, and during my PhD um We'd filed some patents on the work that I was involved in and that got licensed to a biotech company. And through that process, I really got introduced to the commercial side of research. And so I wanted to explore that um, a bit more. So got to work with the University of Adelaide initially uh, with their technology transfer company, which was at the time called Adelaide Research and Innovation. And they take, you know, um, promising uh, technology that has some commercial application that's originated at the university and you work with the scientists who really have a goal to try and take that to to the market help them develop it to a, to a point where it is commercially viable try and find partners to help them develop that technology and then negotiate the commercial transactions to make that happen and I loved that yeah. um, and I had such a fantastic apprenticeship during that period because I got to work on not just health and and life science-based opportunities, but I worked on agricultural varieties that the university had developed and defence technologies Mm. and a whole whole raft of different things. And that told me two things. One, that I loved the business side as much as I loved the science side. And it also told me that I quite unlike my PhD where you've really got to dig very deeply into one unique topic, I thrived on having a bunch of different things that Mm. I could work on at the same time. So that diversity 
was probably quite important for me to be engaged. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then so you go jump from one project to another project, and they're like completely chalk and different. cheese, and yeah. yeah, yeah. And the only reason I say that is because I think that's informed how or why I'm doing what I do now yeah. because it is quite diverse. So um, one of the companies, one of the technologies through that period, we spun out into um, a separate company and I stepped out and ran that for, you know, two and a half years, raised venture capital to um, enable that company to continue. And that whole process just really introduced me to the VC community in Australia and I got headhunted by a, a VC firm and that was... 13 years ago and then mm. I've been in, in venture ever since. But I've had the privilege of working with companies all over the world through my venture experience through, you know, the US, Southeast Asia, um, you know, Australia and, um, and, and beyond. And, you know, it's, it's been a fantastic experience where I've got to work across a bunch of different mm. industries from healthcare to logistics to e-commerce to, um, you know, just satellites and um, the Internet of Things. So for me, what we do now, um, having the diversity of, of portfolio companies that we work with um, has been great for just keeping my brain engaged and keeping my um, uh, joy in, in what I do, even though it's actually, you know, I, I often find it, pretty um a difficult job for a lot of reasons um but i love it um but i think that diversity is is what really gets me out of bed and also the impact so you know i genuinely feel like on a good day i genuinely feel like we're helping our entrepreneurs realize their their vision mm -hmm. Um, on a bad day, I'm pretty confident that we're contributing to the decimation of it. <laughs> but on a good day, you know, I do I do feel we're, you know, on balance helpful and that mm. makes me feel like, you know, there is a distinct purpose and an impact to what yeah. we do. How, how, have, how have you seen the conversation around entrepreneurship change over the last know, decade or so? My, my sense is it has become, it's become more of a conversation, I think, um, that whole idea of telling, ask, asking, or telling children you're going to be getting a job or or creating a job that seems to be much more of a common conversation. But how have you seen that things mm. change in terms of or rightly or wrongly changed over the last decade? Well, I think it was something that wasn't really talked about very much um, at a at a whole of country level entrepreneurship. You know, you you would occasionally um, run across the odd entrepreneur, and um, of course. Within the migrant community, the um, proportion of entrepreneurs is pretty high, actually, because you have them mm. coming here, don't get hired easily, start their own businesses. Mm. And so that's quite an entrepreneurial, um, you know, drive that you see there. But I think what we've seen with the advent of technology and how that has made it easier to start businesses and cheaper to start businesses, but not just your local um, deli kind of a business, but a business that can actually um, be global from day one. Mm. I think that has changed the conversation about entrepreneurship, where it feels less overwhelming a path to take. You have to be, excuse me, prepared to have some uncertainty mm. and you have to have a tolerance of risk, but the um, cost to do it 
and the time to do it is not the same investment that it might have been a decade ago. And I think um, that has certainly helped that conversation about entrepreneurship. I think we've seen in a public way, you know, our government sort of ramp up their focus on innovation and, and entrepreneurship as a way to provide a bit of robustness around industry sectors. So we're less reliant on mining or um, agriculture, but that's waxed and waned over the mm. last 10 years. And it went from being, you know, something to be celebrated to being a bit of a dirty word. And now it's sort of, um, you know, hopefully being talked about a little bit more. Yeah. Um, but I think just ma- at a macroeconomic level, people are becoming way more uncertain about the future. And yeah, and the sense is that we're more uncertain about the future than what we've been before. Yes. Yeah, okay. And I think that's driving the conversation about it as well because mm-hmm. people don't feel like there is a certainty or stability in their job working for someone else. And so there's a greater drive to want to create something okay. themselves that's interesting. so okay. that they can be a bit more in control of their destiny. Mm. It's almost like those competing forces isn't it really there. There's never been more opportunities than, than ever. The world is it's so easy to reach, but anxiety levels are through the roof as well. <laughs> I think they absolutely. And they're kind of just clashing and it's absolutely trying and to make sense of it. Almost we're in this point in time of going, how do you make sense of what it actually is? Almost when we were just localised and the, the borders seemed to be around you, or the, the psychological borders around a city or a town or a or population, we didn't even see the other side of the world. Now we see it and it's going, oh, my God, it's <laughs> huge. A- absolutely. And you can see the knock-on effects of what might be happening somewhere else and mm. how that might impact us. And so I do think that people are, despite having such, you know, robust, um, such a robust economy, I think that we're going to see a recession soon mm. and I think that is scaring people. Where do you think that recession will come from? What, what, what's I just... Oh, look, I, I think there's a number of things that could be driving that, but I just, I see the conversations that are happening between the US and China at the moment and I think that there is going to be an impact of that and I'm not sure that we're prepared for it. Mm. I think we have relied, we've been the beneficiaries of our relationship, trade relationship with Mm. China over the last decade and that has saved us from the turmoil that we might have seen somewhere else and if China for some reason wanted to change that relationship we would be yeah. dead in the water. And we're very reliant on mining too. And Absolutely. Without mining, we're a net importer of most things. So and we're not making enough of an investment into new industries yeah. to bridge that gap in a It's quite scary when you look term. at some of the stats, isn't it, really? You're going, in, in a way, we've... Um, what is the, um, I'm trying to remember the author. Okay, the lucky country back in the 60s. I was talking about how we're just living off mining and, and, and it was that was back then and we, we basically are now and we don't really think about it. If we, That's And now right. we're talking about removing coal and all those sort of... We, we, we're, we're exporting iron ore but we're importing steel and, yeah, and, and, <laughs> and it's and these funny things but we haven't actually taken that money to invest into entrepreneurship as much as certainly exactly. we should have. And, or, or even, even if not entrepreneurship, just new mm. industries that are going to be something that we have a comparative advantage because... We're not going to be able to dig stuff out of the ground mm. forever. Um, if we handle things properly, we will probably have a really robust primary industry, um, you know, through agriculture. But 
but that's not going to be enough. Mm. Um, we need to have something else that we happen to be world leaders in. And I just couldn't tell you to, even though I feel like I work pretty close to the bleeding edge or the cutting edge of technology, um, I couldn't tell you what that next industry is going to be. So I think that should scare the bejesus out of all Australians, to be honest. Mm. Well, you would deal with or, or um, at least be privy to conversations within governments at a federal government level or a state government level it's across Australia. I, I get the sense that on, from an entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship side, it kind of waxes and wanes depending on the mood and where you would have thought they're going, oh, shit, we've got to do something about this. It's, it really it, it, it depends and it, it, it's not really – the burning deck doesn't seem to be understood or or is it maybe because the it's, it is so political and the terms are only limited terms and like, uh, what, what do you kind of get? Do you, or do you get the sense that government is by and large supporting entrepreneurship? I think state governments are by and large supporting okay. entrepreneurship. I'm not sure it's happening – um, well at the federal level, but at a state government level, absolutely, and not everywhere. But let's take South Australia, for example. The fund that we manage, which is the South Australian Venture Fund, is one example of the state government recognising that we are going to have to build those new industries ourselves and we're going to have to invest in them now. Mm. And we see that same sort of um, chutzpah and, and sort of... Uh, just taking, being proactive about it at Queensland government level, um, somewhat in New South Wales, you know, and absolutely in Victoria. And what I've, you know, it's not just a single pillar strategy. There's a whole raft of different things that the South Australian government are doing to try and make that investment early on because they know we have a burning platform and they've got to fix it. And that's why the fund is so important. Um, so I do think that is happening uh, the question is, or, or the thing that I don't think is well understood is, I don't think that it gets talked about a lot at a sort of mum and dad level. Um, you know, in, even in the paper today, there's, you know, an article about the fund that we're managing and how much it's costing and the people around it without putting any context on why that fund, though, is so important for our economic future. So, we're not educate we and I put myself mm. in this um, basket. We're not educating the average South Australian who picks up the paper and has a look at that about why it matters, why we need to do this. Because if we don't, you know, we're worried about unemployment levels now, and they're getting worse. They're only going to be double in 10 years' time. And so we need to be able to draw that line for people in a really easy way that, that says because these industries are the ones that are the net contributor to jobs. Like last year in Australia, 90% of all jobs growth came from companies that were less than two years old, mm -hmm. 90%. So that's where the jobs are coming from. That's how we're going to create new high-growth industries that are going to hopefully make us um, competitive on a global basis. We are terrible at ter telling those stories. So parents aren't understanding that, so therefore their children aren't understanding. Is that right? And it's or? not. It's not. No. I, I, it's more like, um, you know, the, the South Australian public are intelligent, but we are not explaining why. I think what we tend to do is we talk about all of the fancy tech stuff and we talk about the success stories. 
without acknowledging that there are many failures along the way, but that the net benefit is X or Y and the sort of timeframes that we're talking about. And I think it works to the detriment of the general public understanding the timeframe for this investment and why it's important to do, even if there aren't any near-term announceable things that will come out of it. I just think So the community has potentially has that. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but the, the, the community has a fear that, yes, we need to do something, but this seems to be a little bit too risky. Yeah, or that seems like a waste of money. Why would we do that when we could save, a, you know, a plant here with X amount of jobs? So, you know, I, I think there is – we need to do a better job. We, the community, the, the innovation ecosystem and all of the stakeholders need to do a better job than we're doing at explaining why um, – while that might be the urgent, this is actually the important yeah. long-term sustainable uh, solution or one of them mm. and uh, why it's not just a kind of waste of money on something that kind of sounds sexy but um, really isn't going to deliver an economic impact. I think we've got to explain that better. I agree. I, um, and I, and I, I guess I'd sort of just a couple of points. So we we added some work last year where we did some work for a, one of the universities, and they've got a an entrepreneurial kind of a significant entrepreneurial area, and we're doing work about sort of their positioning and had some interesting discussions. We did one or two discussions with with students, and they were younger through to older. I think there were a couple of school students, but most of them were going to university. And at the end, we asked that question: Are you looking to create a job or or get a job? And it was very clear they were doing. You know, physio or science or even business and they're going to get a job and it was very very clear and they could see, could not see any relevance of why they wanted why they needed to upskill in entrepreneurship or, or whatever it was really maybe the one or two one of the students from high school was thinking that might be a thing maybe because their parents were entrepreneurs but by and large it was almost there's a wall up and they didn't quite oh, get and that and partly that's because our education system is very vocationally focused that's right so you don't go to university to learn something. You go to university to do a course that's directed at getting you job X mm. at the end of it. And in year 10 they're told, what, what are you going to study to get it's, what job? Yeah. Exactly. So, um, you know, I love the system in America where y- you do an undergraduate degree which um, gives you a whole bunch of optionality um, and you don't actually have to pick what that's you're right. going to do until later and I think that's a much better system but it's an imperfect system but it's a better system i think mm. well my i've got a daughter in year 10 at the moment she's been yeah, you have to, have to do it and it's, it's a compulsory safe subject to, to say what you're going to study and rather than that saying your situation going, i really like science it's it's going we need to go what you're going to study yeah. um and the, the other the other um i get project we did some work years ago when holden was first closing here and and the general population was saying well the, the government should have been prepared like the, the the newspapers, I'm talking about the media. The media often, when anything ever happens, the media puts something on the front page of "we've closed that mine" or "we've closed that manufacturer." But we're going, well, we we know it. We need we need to be evolving things. So I, I'd kind of say the general population is maybe not completely understanding entrepreneurship, but they're they're aware of the need to to innovate and do something. I think it's just knowing how to. Maybe it's we did work in the arts, and sometimes the arts will kind of be quite in, introspective. But maybe it's kind of telling their story and being able to tell that story in a in a way that makes it sound quite exciting. Uh, 
do you see differences around, like, the, the, say, the US compared to Australia or of, of where we're at? I'm assuming Australia in, in terms of talking about growing a business is is it a, is it a different level to like Silicon Valley and the likes? Or Yeah, I think there is a difference. Um, I think – I don't think there's a lot of difference between Australia and the US in terms of entrepreneurial drive. I think that's pretty consistent. Uh, the difference that I see is the tolerance of failure. So um, in the US, we uh, in the US you can fail. It's not that you're congratulated for failing, but there is a, oh, that's, that's a shame. It's a shame that yeah. that business didn't work out. So what are you going to do next? Um, and an acknowledgement that you must have learnt something through that process, you know, provided you were not a a fraud, but mm. um, here in Australia, you know, you get really, um, you know, you get made to be a pariah, I think, if you fail. Um, part of that's linked a little bit perversely to the tall poppy syndrome. Mm. You can't get too ahead of yourself, but you also can't fail. You've got to really thread that needle very... Um, and do you see the tall poppy syndrome as more of an Australian thing than elsewhere. Oh, without a doubt. And yeah. what does the tall like, so what how does the um, tall poppy syndrome manifest in your mind? Obviously if the business falls over, people kind of expect expected that and get some glee out of it. But how would you broaden for people not in Australia, what's the tall poppy syndrome? Oh well it it's a um, a cultural phenomenon where your Success is celebrated up until a point where um, the country or the cultural, you know, zeitgeist is such that you're seen to be getting too far ahead of yourself and there is a desire and a whole bunch of behaviour that pulls you down. So instead of just your continued success being celebrated and encouraged, continued success or is is frowned upon because for some reason it makes the rest of the cultural stakeholders feel bad. Yeah, okay. I think. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I've seen that within, you know, uh, you know, the company I work for at the moment is obviously going through super challenging circumstances and, um, you know, I've seen us over the last 10 years go through that process of being kind of a little upstart or a startup to being um, sort of that um, underdog that people were really championing and then you get to a certain success level and then everyone wants to sort of pull you down a little bit. Mm. Um, and so I've seen that play out a number of times in the marketplace and the Schadenfreude that sort of accompanies all of that is what we think I see play out in the media quite a bit. Um, and none of that is particularly helpful for encouraging people to kind of have another go. So, no, no. you know, if you're an it's entrepreneur... It's horrible. And certainly when we run a business and we see even at a, at a or not, not a basic level, you see a restaurant go under or all the likes and and it's like there's a, a glee in it. Yeah. <laughs> people share it and I just sort of my, my heart, heart just sinks so that people were involved in that business. It must feel just absolutely dreadful, and it, and it's, and then you hear horror stories about like that that sort of thing happens, and then somebody, heaven forbid, commits suicide, and 
So it's we're getting it's almost glorifying from like yeah, that that, we, that that sorrow, which is just so so sad. Or I was about to say every is it a is it a blokey thing where everybody wants to be the alpha male and the winner, and if someone else is the winner, it feels like we're we're the loser. It's there's this funny kind of psyche thing going. I don't on think it's well. a blokey thing. I think it's quite a human is it, is thing. That right? Yeah. I think okay. it's just a human thing. I, I understand the psychological basis for it. It's just when we're we're going to trap ourselves in mediocrity, if actually you can't fail or you can't um, you can't have something not work and then be given a chance to to do something again. Like I sort of think the the people who I know who are the most successful have rarely had everything in their life go right. The ones who are really successful have had couple of horrific experiences. Mm. They've learnt from those experiences. It's what's made them better business people or investors or directors or, you know, whatever the case might be. They're the people that you want then involved in your next venture if it has a tough time. You, the people who've only had great things happen to them are going to be pretty useless when, you know, your company hasn't has a tough time. So those people are really valuable and so that Australia piles on to the people who've had a horrific experience or something's not worked out or it's failed is depriving the country, the sector, the industry, whatever we're talking about, of the really valuable people and it's a recipe for mediocrity. Mm. So, you know, we circle back to the original discussion about where are we going to be economically going forward we're never going to have a comparative or competitive advantage on a global scale if we trap ourselves in mediocrity. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I just, I would love to know how to break that cycle. I'm sure there are much smarter people who are working on that um, problem than than I am, but it's certainly something that I think limits us. Is that cultural psyche? Absolutely. Really? Does it, I remember early on in, I could not, not say I've done anything particularly remarkable, but I think somebody said, um, I know, one of the measures of your success is you start to have a few haters. <laughs> and you go, oh, goodness me. Um, but but, but is, that, is that part of it? Like you, you have success and you just go, well, the part of as you grow and as you have success, you're going to have lots of people that are going to be supporters. You, you might have more people that, or, or others who, who aren't. Is, or, or, I think or is it just more saying it's, it's socially unacceptable to be a hater and is like is, there's two ways of do you just have to accept there's going to be a reality or do you need to just say as a society we're not going to accept that we're going to disallow I think it's got to be both, to be both so yeah. I think we you can't really embark on any venture that has any sort of um, public profile or um, a, a addresses a global market without at some point having some haters you you know you can't please everyone that's I think par for the course but I also think we need to have a cultural psyche that is more encouraging and celebratory of success and more tolerant of failure not tolerant of bad behavior or fraudulent behavior or any of that sort of stuff but just a a greater tolerance of people having a go maybe not being successful and getting back up again and doing it again. Like that's the only way we're going to kind of push forward, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. And I'm, I have the sense that you're a, a, a very strong person, but uh, 
it's hard riding through those storms. It feels like it's almost like that the career choice you've made is your, your, your choice or otherwise, <laughs> or, the, or the boat you find, the ship you find yourself in, is that they, they, it's, it's stormy and some days are great and some days are, are totally not great. So how, how I do don't you... know. I, I, to be honest, I don't think I am a strong person. Yeah. I think um, I'm absolutely a work in progress around trying to build up strength and resilience and I think... Um, the last 15 months has definitely <laughs> been, um, in air quotes, um, character building on that front. Um, oh, it's been horrific. And, you know, I've had really, I really deep depression, um, as a result of everything that's been going on. So it's like, and the reason I say that is because I don't want people to think that you can just kind of ride this wave and it's all, you can't boss. You can't boss it. You can't. Yeah, you're not this. like just uh, rising above it all the time because that's no, no one experiences it that way. Um, and I think strength and resilience is about getting up every day, kind of, and then getting through the day. Whether that is getting through the really crappy times and the horrible stuff that's being thrown at you. Sometimes it's not turning up and just, you know, kind of um, making sure you're kind of looking after your own um, mental health. But I think you've just got to find whatever way works for you to um, continually ask yourself, do I still believe in what I'm doing? Can I put one foot in front of the other? And however anyone gets to do that, whatever works for them is what I um, absolutely encourage. But, yeah, I, I'm not strong or resilient, but I am working on it. Do you have approaches or techniques that you use to at least maintain a level of balance or, or at least not allow <laughs> yourself to slip into a deeper hole or whatever? Yeah, so... Um, I do, and one of those is just constantly surrounding myself with people whose opinion they're not going to tell me what I want to hear. Um, they're truth speakers, so I think that that's very helpful, spending time with family. Um, but I also see a psychologist because yeah. I think um, I... No one, I think, has the innate skills to deal with really, really tough times. Um, and you might get through a tough time, but that doesn't mean that you now have the skills to get through some completely other tough time that's going to happen to you in two years' time. I think it's all very bespoke and um, and some people are, you know, naturally good at deflecting things or not experiencing them. So, but I don't think that's particularly healthy. So I'm of trying not to, experiencing. Okay. Yeah, like so, you know, for example, perhaps you get um, publicly humiliated, and some people might deal with that by just um, not reading the media or um, not believing what people say is true. But I would argue that that's them just in a bit of denial. They're just kind of ignoring it, pretending it's not there. Whereas I think um, it's a better way to deal with it by acknowledging that it's there, <laughs> experiencing it, sitting in it, 
and then dealing with it. That's how you kind of get mm. through really tough times or else it comes back in some echo later on right. if you don't. And so for me, I need a psychologist to help me work mm. through that stuff. Yeah. Um, and other people might do it. Yeah. A and I think way. they say, like, I think psychologists and I think it might be even like um, mindfulness people, mindfulness experts say don't, don't, um, don't ignore those emotions, embrace those emotions and, like it's that not every Absolutely. day is happy, <laughs> and no. sometimes an exciting, interesting life is. Sometimes the days are shit, and sometimes the month might be shit, and sometimes the six months might be shit. Yeah, and you just got to actually kind of embrace that that the, the ride going through. But even just learning how to understand what those emotions are, and hopefully how you actually kind of manage those, I think is yeah is a challenging one. And I'm not even sure embracing it. I mean, I would love to get to a point where I could embrace all of the traumatic stuff that might happen but I think it's more about accepting it you know yeah. how do you get to a psychological acceptance of well this is where I'm this this is what's happening I have to accept it sit in it and then find a way to dig myself out of it you know mentally and emotionally I don't want to turn this into a psychological kind of <laughs> session <laughs> but um what are the things that kind of, I guess, rip you apart? Not, not necessarily specific, but what, what are the things that rip you apart the most that you might need to kind of go, I need to find a quiet corner now? This is like the, the types of things that, yeah, that just, you know, um, moment out. Oh, look, the things that rip, oh, oh, I can talk about the things that rip me apart about what happens to other people and then what happens to me. So the things that bother me the most and certainly what's bothered me the most over the last 12 or 15 months has been, um, are poor shareholders and investors. So I just feel that they have been the biggest collateral damage of everything that has happened to our company and they don't deserve it. And um, just that injustice, that unfairness rips me apart. The um, unfairness of like what, mm. of investing in and I guess making that, yeah, guess, that commitment to the business. and That's right, investing there hard-earned superannuation money into our company at, you know, at a, at a $14 share price and now it being worth less than 18 cents, that was no fault of theirs and it certainly is actually no fault of the companies as ASIC has just um, cleared us of. But um, that injustice and unfairness just really, like, makes is my that, blood is boil. That, is that like... Is that a sense of guilt you can't control or is that a sense of just like It's like not a guilt. It's, a... it's like on, sincerely it's not a guilt. It's a sense it's just morally unjust mm. in my opinion yep. that these poor people have had their wealth destroyed for no other reason than a, um investor with an opposite thesis made it so. So that just makes that's very unfair in my opinion, and I that unfairness and, you know, maybe it's my blue-collar background, <laughs> I don't know, but to me um, that really makes my blood boil. So it's not guilt, it's injustice. Um, and for me personally, the thing that um, I really struggle with is just pu- public shame. So um, as the perfectionist personality type that I am you know perfectionists always want to have everyone around them um, 
think well of them, think positively mm. of them. And so the worst thing you can do Since to a perfectionist... Since you were an eight-year-old, that, that was you, so, yeah. Absolutely. Worst thing you can do to a, a perfectionist is publicly shame or humiliate them. And so for me, that's been the thing that's ripped me to pieces. Open up the paper or hearing... Oh, yeah, like to be called a fraud or to be called a crook in a national newspaper of my peers um, is about the worst thing that could happen, Mm. you know, in my mind, like in terms of what would have been your worst... If someone had asked me five years ago, what would be your worst fear? That would be it. Um, So the positive of that is now that's happened. So... um, the worst thing I could possibly imagine has happened and, you know, I'm still having a laugh when my friend puts a wig on their head, you know, so like you can survive it and, you know, you realise it and it's horrible, don't get me wrong, but you still can survive it and that's an important lesson I think. Mm. And, and I, before we started the interview, I said, how was your, how was your week? And, um, and, and that, yeah, I've been in the paper today and it, it's not that great. So, so, so yeah. So do you? Yeah. So do you call like on a, on a day like that? Do you call on friends, or do you do you find a moment of solitude? Or oh no, I write. So yeah. one of the things I've always done is write, and I haven't been able to publish anything um, of late for obvious reasons. But um, that's the way I process it. So how I'm feeling about anything on a given day, I'll, I'll write a blog post that never gets published, <laughs> and. Um, and that's how I do it, yeah. So what, what benefit do you get out of that writing just for, for people um, who don't write or what the benefit it is? Partly it just uh, exercises it from my brain mm. and onto paper. So it's kind of like, great, out of my head. Um, partly it's just because it allows me to process it. So wh- why is this upsetting me so much? or, or um, And allows me to kind of whinge about, stuff like why us again or why is why are we getting picked on on this particular thing instead of saying that to the world and I understand this podcast is going to be held by many people um when it's really you know not their problem or or um and it also sounds woefully um self-absorbed to say that to other people um, I can just write it down and yeah. then it's kind and of... And sometimes you'll share it and sometimes you won't. Exactly. But at least it takes it out of your mind yeah. and it's there. Yeah. 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 Any other kind of things that, I don't know, that I do upsetting to... or things that sort of like things that like you sort of talked about, things that happen to other people that are, are upsetting and you talked about something that's sort of from your own side when you're, you know, public kind of shame or whatever it might be. Is there other other things that... That upset me. <laughs> Sorry, um, Oh, look, no, it's just like I'm very um, idealistic. So I like to see the world as just even though mm. it's not. So, you know, I see a lot of unfairness and inequality which um, bothers me. Um, but so as a theme, that just generally bothers me when, when things are just horribly unfair. Um, but... Generally, I'm not really an angry person, hmm. so um, I tend to like to deal with the stuff that I see that makes me angry by doing something about it. <laughs> yeah. And does it, it does it come back sometimes to um, those things that you wish 
they're frustrated they're occurring and you wish there was a solution but there's no solution so that's it oh yeah yeah it's yeah the things that you can't control i wish they weren't the case they are the case so there's a bit of a loop going on how do i i can't solve this situation it's just it is what it is it is what it is yeah. yeah and you know you started off the um the chat i think before you turn on the um pressed record about uh, oh god where was I going with that comment <laughs> about um like I just wish I could control a whole bunch of things but the older oh that's right the older you get the more people you know yeah the older you I get the more I realize how little I have control over and um I find my adult life has been me just constantly recalibrating my expectations about the things that actually I can influence in my life Like it just becomes vanishingly low, Mm. um, which is both sad and liberating at the same time. Do you find yourself, um, rather than trying to make everybody happy, you have people people you know that have your back and they're more on your wavelength that you you lean on more, whether it's family or whether it's friends or whether it's business associates rather than... I absolutely have people that I lean on a lot. Business associates, friends, family. My family are and always have been amazing. But I'm not going to lie, I still want to try and make everyone happy. Um, And that's a recipe for disaster, but it's also um, what makes me good at what I do because I've got a whole bunch of stakeholders in what I do, whether they're my investors in my fund or my portfolio company CEOs or other board members or um, the ecosystem around me. And I don't have the luxury of just keeping one of those stakeholders happy. I have to try and manage all of them and try and find consensus amongst them or build community around them. So you can't pick and choose and no, go, yeah, no. that but, one over there is difficult, I'll stay away from them. It's, no. Yeah. So that has served me well but it also, you know, it's, it's, it is mostly mad to think you can keep everyone happy because I know really, realistically, I can't. But my job really relies on my ability to try and do that. And I think if, you're, if you've got a personality type which is where, do you know what, 80-20 rule, I'm just going to keep these 20% happy because that will get me 80% of the way, um, I just don't think that works in this sector and mm. this industry. And it's, I guess the, the, the key observation today is that like, you care, like shit happens and and it's, it's, it's bad and you wish it was not bad but... You care, like it's, it's oh, totally. empathy I mean, and care, and but it's the reason I'm still here because you know if I was trying to do what was in my own personal best interest, I probably you know should have left or taken another job or done something else twelve months ago. But that's not my focus. My mm. focus is how do I um, take care of my portfolio companies? How do I take care of my investors? How do we try and build? for our shareholders so they can, you know, maybe um, get some of the value or their wealth destruction built back up. You know, I'd said to myself I was going to fight 
until the bitter end. <laughs> so we are almost at the bitter end, I yeah, think. Yeah. But, um, you know, a lot of us are still there for that reason. You know, it's not just me. There's a whole bunch of people in our business who were just good, decent humans who wanted to do the best that they could for, you know, our investors. And that will be little consolation for many, many, many people I, I know. But, um, yeah, that that was the driver nonetheless. Yeah. You must meet a lot of people that that are made of stone to a certain extent, or seem on the outside. Is is that right? In that kind of that, Do you that know sort what? Of not, space, or not a lot. Or? No. So the interesting thing is that um, look, funds management does absolutely have some people in it who are all about money, or they're quite stony, um, or they're very self interested as opposed to externally interested but I would also say or argue that there are a lot of people in our industry who are just genuinely good humans who put everyone else before themselves and you know I'm not trying to sound pious Mm. this is there are generally people who are really focused on trying to do the right thing to try and do it differently you know we've seen a whole bunch of really crappy behavior through the um Banking Royal Commission, and there are so many people I know in the funds management industry who are just the complete opposite to that, um, and that doesn't get talked about enough. Mm-hmm. Like all the bad eggs always get, you know, the headlines. Um, but I think, by and large, the industry is starting to select for people of empathy and and good values and a moral compass because. At the end of the day, that's actually what gets the best outcome. I think. Yeah. Okay. So, so maybe know, a decade or so ago, you might have found some people that are, are truly are asshole <laughs> or <laughs> made of stone. But but now you can, like, by and large, they need to have a degree of empathy and care. Otherwise, they're not meeting. Or otherwise, the investors won't back them because you know they can't get their time and attention, or they pull the plug as soon as something starts to go bad, or you know, like. You can do that, but you get to do that once before um, you won't get given that chance again. Yeah. So um, I think at the end of the day that that sort of um, prioritising others over your own self, self-interest, having a bit of empathy, having that moral compass ends up being selected for ultimately. Mm, okay. Um, do you I, – I, when you – how do you pick a, a, a winning business, like, I guess a winning business, and what about when a winning business turns into a, it, it just doesn't work? Like mm. that, that's, and obviously that sort of in your world must happen. Like you, how, do you, oh, yeah. how do you pick a winning business to start with? So, I mean, it's and a bit of a, mean? it's a dark art, right, yeah. um, in the sense that it's a bit of an alchemy between the um, the vision of the company, the the vision and the charisma and the X factor of the management team or the entrepreneur or the founder, the genuine opportunity that the company, whether it's a product or a platform or a service, can address and and their growth rate and their ability to execute on that. And we all try and crystal ball gaze at some of that stuff and, you know, a lot of times we have some data to base our decision on and some of those things we don't have a lot of data. And so it's 
why I say it's a bit of a dark art as opposed to a science, but that's kind of how we try to pick a winning company. And there are so many examples of companies that have been a market darling and and then haven't worked out. One of the ones in our portfolio is Shoes of Prey. That was a company that really had a cracker of a platform and just really struggled to find the right um, product um, within, like because they could do everything. It was hard for them to narrow it down to the one thing they were really good at that the customer really wanted. Mm. Took us a long time to work that out, and it ran out of money. And because you know, companies when they're big, high growth companies and they're a market darling, once they start to slow down, they get into a death spiral, and it's really hard for them to raise more money. Um, and that's pretty much what happened with Shoes of Prey. So, uh, and and that can happen. It's part. It's part of the course in this in this sector is that we're going to have those companies or the founders or the management teams that shoot for the stars or shoot for the moon and just miss. Which, mm-hmm. And but um, they did something new and different and novel and really swung for the fences. And even though it wasn't a success, um, that knowledge base is incredibly valuable. And I hope that those founders get recycled back into our yeah. ecosystem in some way, shape or form so that they can leverage or, or stand on the shoulders of, the, of that learning um, and make whatever it is that their next project is that they work on successful. Yeah, because they got hammered, didn't they, in like social and there was people writing articles and... Well, likes there, and everybody has an opinion on what they did wrong, but absolutely. <laughs> it just seems so theory. It's, it's very it's, easy in hindsight to say what they did right and wrong, isn't it? Absolutely, because you've got the benefit of data. Mm. <laughs> Whereas, but sometimes um, it's not even data. Sometimes you've got people on a LinkedIn post saying what they would have done and why it failed, and here's my five reasons. You're going, <laughs> Look, <laughs> I have absolutely like no trouble with that because I, I have no problem with that. I actually think okay, that's so useful that, conversation. To have a positive discourse. Absolutely, because then the next one who tries to do something similar can have the benefit of that insight. That's out there in the ether now and great, that's awesome um, discourse to to have happen. I think the unhelpful discourse is when the media goes, you know, oh, former market darling, shoes of prey, in liquidation. Uh, And it is kind of shaming the founders for failing. And the management team of Shoes of Prey did not do anything wrong. They didn't, you know, squander money. They didn't waste money. They had a go. The investors who invested knew that it was a high-risk investment and they they couldn't make it work. They couldn't get to the scale needed to not have to raise money and, you know, the dream sort of um, fizzled out. And I just think shaming them for having a go and it not working out is not helpful yeah. because it just makes every other founder of a startup think, well, I don't want to do that press because I don't want to get a media profile because then I'll just get hammered. So if what should the media do? Like what, would, what, would you, what would you be your dream in place? Say three years' time and the media is much better at dealing with situations like that. What would you like to see in Australia? Oh, and look, I'm not, 
I, what, I would what, what's love, a headline? I would love the media, if they're going to write those stories, to do it in a way that's more balanced and less sensational. And I understand the battle for eyeballs at the moment and I understand the drivers of the media and this is not me bagging the media at all, but it would be great if it was just less sensationalist, like kind of putting the night, like, the, you know, those founders of She's a Prey felt terrible. Like they were horrified that that is where it ended up and on behalf of all their investors and and to have then, you know, the Australian media who had built them up for ages and, and kind of given them accolades, kind of putting the knife in when it when it failed, I just think is not, it, it's not helpful. So I would prefer to see something that's more balanced so that it is less inflammatory or less likely to discourage other startups or other entrepreneurs mm. from actually having it. They go. tried their best yeah. and, and it was beyond their con- control. Like, or, or beyond their skill set or capability or whatever it is that it ends up being. Um, I just think we... But don't go, ha, 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 you <laughs> you failed. Yeah, because I just think, again, recipe for mediocrity. If mm. we're going to laugh at people or shame them when they fail, um, then we're just going to have this vicious cycle repeating where only the really brave will have a go. Um, And you better not make a mistake because if you make a mistake, it's Mm. going to be plastered all over the media and and it may actually be the thing that um, tips the company into a negative spiral. When you're mentoring, obviously... uh, like high performing or, or um, standout startups, and it's going to shit and it's, and it's failing. How, mm. how do you like what like what what's a, a good way of being a sounding board? And I, I'm sure a lot of people have had mentors, and sometimes it's great, and sometimes it's not. And, and yep. they, you're having a staff issue, and you might just blurt out stuff for an hour. Like, what's the way in which you can guide someone like that? It's obviously having a really challenging time. Yeah, I mean, it depends on what the problem is, but my. My MO is that if I'm on the board of a company, my um, the way I behave is that I work for the founder. So I'm there to help you. So if you're going through tricky times, um, either you tell me what you would like me to do or I'm going to just step in and kind of start helping. Um, but I'm not there to kind of wag a finger at them. I'm not there to tell them off. That's not particularly helpful. Um, it's about how do we put a brain's trust together to try and solve whatever the problem is. And so, yes, sometimes that might be just letting them vent for a little while. Maybe it's strategizing with the team or the rest of the board around um, the best way to get through that. Maybe it's taking some of the load off of them so that they are freed up to have a bit more of a focused concentration on mm. the thing that they, they need to solve and we do sort of all of the above I kind of say I'm like the bench person who you just kind of call in (laughs) onto the court when you need um and then chuck back when you don't like that's kind of the the way that we operate um there is we've certainly seen lots of examples when companies are failing people get mad they'll start demanding 
or they do the worse worse than that, which is just abandon ship and sort of just say, we don't want to have anything to do with it. That's all a bit too hard. Um, You know, to the point I think I made at the start of the podcast around this is why you want people on your team who have been through some horrific times because it's when you're going through tricky times that you actually need the help. Mm. And so you need someone who's kind of knows. that about perspective and just yeah. being able to manage and it's it. been through that and can actually yeah. talk about how to kind of manage through it with some sort of, um, you know, experience base to draw from. So, yeah, that's a long answer, I know, but it's mm. very much a, it depends. Yeah. And I think Brené Brown, I think her name is, talks about vulnerability and I think she says you've got to be vulnerable but then she also says there's a line. You don't, you don't stand up to a bunch of investors saying I don't know what to do and we're screwed and we haven't got any money um, but maybe you need to talk to that, talk to somebody about that. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> but, but what, what, is there a, like a line of vulnerability that you, obviously as a leader you, you want your the, the, the leaders of the businesses you're, you're working with to have some degree of strength, but they're going to have vulnerability as well. Yeah, we want them to have strength, but the last thing you want to do is cultivate an environment or a culture where your CEO or your founders or management teams don't tell you when things are going wrong because they're worried that you'll yell at them, get angry, you know, not they're be helpful. embarrassed and... Yeah. yeah. So, you know, to the Brené Brown thing I think that's where the vulnerability comes in you need to have good enough relationship and cultivate it um, a supportive enough culture that they are given permission to tell you when things aren't going well so that you can collectively try and fix it um, because t- you know waiting till it's um, waiting till it's too late to do something about it is not in anyone's mm. interest so um, so, and it's, it's, it's okay to fail. This is not working. Talk about it sooner rather than later so we can find a solution. Yeah. yeah. Not, not, you know, no one's got a playbook. Everything that every company that we invest in is doing what they're doing for the first time in the world. So um, they're going to get stuff wrong mm-hmm. and that's fine um, so long as they tell us early on enough that they think it's getting off course so that we can correct it. I think once they're you know, three weeks away from running out of money um, <laughs> and and then really only bringing it to our attention that, you know, things are going wrong. And, of course, that would happen because we, you know, we see the accounts more often than that. But as an example, that that's when you start to get really worried. But I, hopefully all of my portfolio companies and founders feel like they can come to us and say, you know, we think we're getting this wrong or we think this is not working Um we think we need to change course mm. and they're going to get a um, great how can I help as opposed to, oh, God, mm. you guys. And, and the key thing from an entrepreneur is uh, I guess they they might they might not know all the answers and what they're doing might be or is likely to be quite new. So there's no And, right in fact, answer. I think there needs to be a recognition that they won't know all the answers yeah. and nor do we, yeah, right? True. So... It's not like we're the omnipotent, um, you know, all-knowing um, kind of data. Like we don't know either, but I'm pretty sure if we've got six smart people around the table, mm. we can probably figure it yes, out. Right. The world's kind of winging it. Yeah, it? totally. Everybody's winging it. Totally. Like a runaway bus. Um, we started off with you as a young girl, uh, loving school and wanting to take homework home and 
which is great. We've got an eight-year-old, or no, 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 sorry, nine-year-old, uh, and she's the same. Like so, at the really? moment, she's, she, <laughs> she loves school and schoolwork, and um, which is great. Um, what would you suggest to young people? And it doesn't need to be eight. Maybe sort of um, late teens at uni. What, what's your suggestion of how to have a successful career or a successful life? Oh God. Um, I wouldn't have a clue because if I <laughs> if I attain a successful life, um, you know, somebody let me know. But look, I think the secret to it all is to find something that you love, and it might be a job, it might be a subject, it might be um, something you know about yourself that that you know is true. But just find something you love, and I know not everyone has the luxury to do something they love as a career or find something they love in their life but all of the really successful people that I know and I mean successful in the sense that they've got real happiness in their life yep. real real contentment in their life are the ones who have found something that they love and they do that yeah so whether it's through their family whether it's through their career or or another um Medium, I think that's the secret. Yeah. If you love what if you love what you do, you might still work, but it won't feel so shit when it's going bad. Absolutely, and even if you don't love what you do at work, if you if you found something you're really passionate about somewhere else in your life, mm. that makes up for it. Yeah. And what would like? What do you if, if someone's out there? Mentors seem to be like the the, the buzz thing. Everybody wants a mentor. Mm-hmm. What makes a good mentor? Um, a truth teller. Yeah. Um, someone with empathy. Um, and I think that's enough. Someone who will tell you the truth and, and someone with empathy. So someone who will tell you the truth, but do it with kindness. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good mentor. Thank you. It's a nice spot to finish on and and hopefully you have a bit of a laugh today. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. All right, thank you. To comment on today's show, do so via Square Holes or myself on Twitter or your favourite social media. You can find me at Jason Dunstone. For more on today's show, other episodes and articles on all things human-centred, customer-focused, innovation and entrepreneurship, go to squareholes.com forward slash blog. Thank you for listening. Uru. Uru.